Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. If you're a fan of this podcast and have an interest in conductors and conducting, may I suggest subscribing to our supporters club over at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. With six different levels of subscription starting from just £5 a month, you can join many other subscribers in enjoying exclusive extra bonus mini-episodes, interviews with prominent figures in the world of classical music, group and personal Zoom meetings, and even the chance to have conducting lessons from myself. The details are in the show notes below, it's quick and easy to join, and I'd love to see you come and join the conversation all about conducting with the other subscribers and myself very soon. Today... I conduct a conversation with a conductor who, after studying in his native Canada, went to Germany and became immersed in the Kapellmeister system, working at the Comic Opera in Berlin. Since then, he's guest conducted in many of the world's greatest opera houses and also on the concert platform. It's a pleasure to welcome Jordan D'Souza. Jordan, lovely to see you, to meet you and to speak with you today. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks so much for having me. And you're in London at the moment, which is good for me because the signal's probably better than it would be if you were in Canada. What are you doing in London? I'm doing right now a new production of Rosen Cavalier with Garsington Opera. Yeah. And we have Philharmonia Orchestra in the pit. So it's an embarrassment of riches there. A great cast, a great team. And it's always good to be in London. Yeah. Well, I love I love Rosen Cavalier. I assisted Andrus Nelsons when he did a concert performance with the CBSO and... Yeah, to get to know that work through those hands and those people. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful work. Absolutely. And it's, I think it's a piece that grows with you also, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know the answer to this. I know that you're from Toronto, but I don't know what your instruments are and how early music came into your life. Um, when did music first enter and, and uh, instrumentally, what were you playing? Yeah, so I was born into a musical family and I'm the seventh of eight kids. And uh, all of the, we're seven boys and a girl and all of them, all, all of us played music growing up. So there was pianos in the house. I'm a keyboard player. So grew up on the piano. I did my undergraduate degree actually in organ. So I was always, uh, I went to a choir school as a kid and always had this vision of being a church musician. Yeah. So singing, choral music, um, but also playing keyboard. But through singing, you're going to encounter conductors. Were they even at the earlier stages, people who really influenced your life or did, it, did that come much later? Absolutely. I would say almost really from the beginning. These were always, you know, how it is in those schools as well, that everybody's focus being so much on music. It was really music and sports for me growing up were the two things I absolutely adored. Anytime I wasn't practicing the organ, I was outside running around in the yard. And um, <laughs> the conductors of the school or some of them who I still keep in touch with were really, I think that's why I wanted to be a, a conductor and wanted to be a musician that, that led was watching these people do it so well. Well, conducting and sports, I mean, through the course of the interviews, I could probably fill a box at Lord's Cricket Ground with conductors who love cricket. Um, what were your sports out of interest? Basketball. Played a lot of basketball growing up. Uh, baseball. So I guess that's almost like the American cricket. <laughs> yeah, it's just a lot and shorter. Yeah. Exactly. And we played a lot of football outside as well. So what we there call soccer, but uh, well, we have football. Yeah. Um, and on to university. Um, was it a university where you first started conducting or had you started that before at choir school? Yeah, I, you know, they gave me the opportunity very often there to get stand up ever from the age of nine, 10 years old in rehearsal oh, wow. here and there to just to say, you know what, why don't you come and do this? Or why don't you come and play the piano, accompany this piece? And then the teacher would say something like, don't play the tenor line, play the alto soprano and bass part. And then they, you know, they'd always, so I was really fortunate to have these kinds of challenges put to me as a young musician. But uh, yeah, it all, it always felt very natural. And do you have any lessons at all or were you just, thrust in front of and say get on with it absolutely no lessons but I think even one of the earliest things I remember doing was always trying to convince my classmates to stay after school it's like hey I've written this new arrangement we got to try this out and I don't know how I got so lucky that these guys not only put up with me but you know volunteered <laughs> to do it again so it was a really formative I think just in the idea of having a musical vision having something I wanted to say and trying to convince people to to, to come along with me I asked somebody recently whether you, uh, it was university that was, was where they had their first conducting lesson, to which their answer was, I've never had a conducting lesson in my life. <laughs> uh, I'm wondering whether at McGill University in Montreal was where you did have some conducting lessons or whether it came later on. 
Absolutely. That's, so that's where I got to start. I was doing my undergraduate degree in Oregon and uh, the guy who used to conduct the choirs there also did the opera. And he said to me, listen, I think this is something you're really going to love. And I said, opera, are you out of your mind? I have no <laughs> desire to do anything with that. He, he said, no, no, just try it. We're doing Cosi Fantute right now. Come to rehearsal on Monday. I'll have a score for you and see if you like it. And he knew. And it took about 15 minutes. And it was funny. The rehearsal was like an accompanied recitative, something that a lot of people would find so dry. And I thought, wow, there's something about this that I've never discovered before. And it's everything I love about music mixed into one. So he started to give me some lessons. And I stayed after I finished my bachelor's degree and did a master's there in conducting and in uh, opera coaching. So uh, kind of like Corey Petitor and, uh, and also conducting. And that was my introduction to kind of a real, uh, a real school of conducting. I had maybe three teachers over the course of my time, one at McGill, one at the Conservatoire, and one I met after assisting him. And they were all students of Swarovski in Vienna. So uh -huh. a very similar approach in a way between the three of them, but they were all such different musicians that it was great to see that a teacher like Swarovski, he brought out, he enabled his pupils to take, make what they would of his method. And who were those three teachers? And did they really stick to the Swarovski school in the fact that I've heard uh, from various places, people like Zubi Mehta and Claudio Bardo, when asked how much technique, stick technique were you taught? They say, oh, about 15 minutes. Uh, yeah, yeah, or, or, none. What, what, or none exactly were yeah. they like that or were you was it solely score and architecture and form they were very different um the first one alexis hauser um and the funny thing is the three of them studied together in vienna with Swarovski at the very same time it was oh, wow. uh, alexis hauser raffi armenian and timothy vernon and uh, and they all have the same stories that they all used to sneak in to watch Kleiber's rehearsals which were well he was one of the few conductors who closed his rehearsals. Yes. They, they all knew how to sneak in there and they'd all lie down on the floor of the galleries. And so they could all listen and they'd just like, can you just imagine the joy of a, all these guys lying down in a row, enjoying this great music making. And um, so they were, uh, they were very different, each of them. They all did technical stuff. And, uh, but it was, I would say, especially with uh, the first two teachers, it was almost 85% score study. And then there, were, there was t technical stuff as well. And with the third, uh, Timothy, he was really an opera conductor in his heart. And that was something that really bridged these two things for me first about kind of, wait a second, the theatricality and the fantasy and all of that, that it's not a dry dogmatic uh, world we should live in, even though you need to, to develop the craft that way to how to approach a score and things like that. So it was a really mixed uh, experience, but I would say the focus was on, on score study. It's very interesting that the first time you go and watch a rehearsal with a score, Cosi Van Tutte, that you said that it was a, a you know, an accompanied recitative bit, which as conducting students or somebody like myself who came to conducting a bit later, is frankly some of the hardest things you ever have to conduct. Um, you know, and some, con some competitions make sure that there is always uh, passages from Mozart operas, accompanied recitatives and whatever on the, in the competition to really sort out the wheat from the chaff. Um, do you think that was one of the reasons why it suddenly interested you is the fact that this, it, it wasn't just standing up and conducting something four, four in the same tempo for five minutes? Absolutely. I think there was a, a spontaneity that, that requires you, a flexibility that I didn't yeah. know and that I realized in myself it was kind of exciting. And I, I liked being able to try and, and then to read the words and say, now, what is she saying? Does it go this way? It, it's not just chord, chord. It's what's next. Mm. And you can phrase that a million different ways. Yeah. And so I absolutely think that that kind of, uh, yeah, the spontaneity of the music making really attracted me. So you mentioned um, studying with somebody at a conservatoire. Which conservatoire was that? That was the Conservatoire de Musique de Montréal. So it was the conservatory in, in Montreal of yeah. music. And I only went there because of this teacher. I had heard about him. I had seen students of his that I really respected. And I said, yeah. I have to go find this guy. Right. And often that's the best way, isn't it? When you see somebody or word of mouth, rather than what you read on a biography on a university website you know, or a conservatory <laughs> website, if you hear, well, this guy teaches like this or this, this lady teaches like that, you know, that's the, the best way in. Absolutely. Mm. Um, McGill University, obviously you studied there, but I read on your biography that you, were, you joined the music faculty there for four years. Was that in some sort of teaching role or um, yeah. the professorial role? What were you doing for those four years? Yeah, so a lot of it was uh, conducting there. So that as I, uh, coincidentally, as I was finishing my degrees, a couple of my professors were leaving their posts. 
right. and that there was this kind of interim period. So I had actually almost made the decision to do that as a profession. I was right. I even signed a, a letter. I, I was one of the most embarrassing things I did, which was to sign a letter of offer 15 minutes before my deadline and then call Monday morning and say, I'm so sorry to call the dean and say, this is just either you're going to have to accept it now, me reneging on this or in a year's time or in three years time, because I can just feel ever since I signed that contract, my heart's heavy. I know this isn't where I belong. And I knew I wanted to go out there. And actually what I left it for was a life of assisting at first. I didn't have any firm plans. And I said, you know what? I'm going to leave behind the jobs I'm doing choral music. I'd had the chance to conduct great pieces. The first piece I rehearsed and conducted myself was the St. John Passion. And it was, <laughs> it was this amazing experience because I'd played it on the, on the organ and the harpsichord for two years before. It was a piece I'd got to become very close with. And it was a, it's the most operatic oratorio, I think, as well. So there was a connection there to something that really spoke to me. But, you know, I, I realized quickly that when I was assisting in an opera room or of a symphony concert, I felt so alive being in the room and discovering things, learning from the musicians as much as you learn from the conductors, watching how people interact. How do they deal with things? How would I do it? How do they do it? And you learn something that way. Mm. And I enjoyed that more than I enjoyed being the guy in the room who was trying to teach people all the things he knew, which at that time was really nothing. Yeah. And so uh, I, I'm really glad I did that, but I did feel bad at the time for the way in which it had to happen. In my notes, dear listeners, I always write a double page of a notebook, uh, as I'm sure you you remember from earlier podcasts. Uh, I always write some facts down. And actually, Jordan sent me his own biography, which many conductors don't do. And I was very thankful for that. But to me, I've written a big question. There's a gap between finishing McGill in 2015, you become conductor in resident of the Tapestry Opera in Toronto in 2015. But then all of a sudden, from 2017 to 2020, your first Kapellmeister in the Comische Opera or Comic Opera of Berlin. Mm -hmm. How did you get from uh, one side of the Atlantic to mainland Europe and get and enter what Kevin John Edu say calls the brutal or the brutality of the Kapellmeister system? How did that come <laughs> about? I'm assuming there must have been some sort of process where you you decided, right, I'm, I want I want to be a Kapellmeister. That's a very astute observation. You're, so, you know, in, in a way, it was it was almost simpler than that. As I decided to make that, you know, that that the work I was doing at the time wasn't fulfilling me completely. And that, you know, opera is the thing right now. And, it, and you know, symphony concerts as well. But at the beginning, it was really the process and the discovery and the time. It was kind of like an incubator or a, or a pressure cooker. Opera yeah. is like a pressure cooker. And I like that. And so I said I, I had actually had the chance to assist uh, a conductor who had been working in Toronto, his name is Johannes Debus. He's the music director of the Canadian Opera Company in Toronto, but he's also based in Berlin. And he was conducting at the Bregenz Festival in Austria. And he asked me if I'd like to go and assist him. And it was the first time I had any chance to do something, uh, you know, really in Europe. And I said, of course, I'd love to. And so I went there and very quickly, I met a few people on staff. You know how those things can be. Once you walk into the right room of people, yeah. it's very easy. Sometimes it's something that's totally inaccessible to you from 10 meters away. But the mm. second you're accepted and you're on the inside, all of a sudden it's a different world. And so the, the head of music staff there was also head of music staff at the Deutsche Oper in Berlin. And I said to her, we started to get on very well. She's a wonderful woman named Anne Champagne. And um, I said to her, listen, I really have this feeling like I, I belong in Europe. And that's what she said. You're absolutely right. You have what it takes. You just need to find the right way in. You never know when it's going to come, but it's a world of opportunity. Get yourself over there. The rest will work itself out. And about a few weeks later, uh, we, we, she, she said to me, listen, I just heard that our colleagues at the Komische Opa in Berlin are looking for a pianist. And I had no ego at all about saying I've been conducting operas. I should, I should know. I'm happy to be a pianist and to do the old fashioned way I'd always heard yeah. about of coming up through the opera house get the chance to it and so I said great I'll do that and uh, so I sent in my application they offered me an audition I was assisting in Toronto at the time they allowed me to go I left for really a day and a half I got on a plane went over there uh, put my suit on at the airport I remember in the washroom <laughs> got in a cab went straight to the opera house warmed up for 15 minutes and I started to play this audition and I uh, started with Zalame I'll never forget the quintet from Zalame wow. I thought why not start right in the deep end 
And it, the audition, I felt like it was going well. And after about 15 minutes, they said, listen, uh, there's another job we haven't advertised yet. It'll be up in about two months. But since you're here, if you'd like, you can stay an extra 30 minutes. We have to expand the audition. You're going to have to conduct. You have to do certain things. They said, I said, no problem. Anything you want. And so we did that. And uh, I conducted, we talked and everything. And the position was for head of music staff. It's called mm. Studienleiter in the German theater system. And uh, they called me a month later and said, you got the job. Brilliant. And I said, great. I didn't even know what Studienleiter meant at the time. I didn't speak a lick of German. And I thought, what am I going to But it's okay. And uh, we didn't know yet. My wife was going to be pregnant and everything, but it's okay. <laughs> so eventually we said, let's go there. Now, these positions are fantastic for gaining experience, but not the best for making enough money to support a family, let's say, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. making a big move. It's, it's, that's not the way the system is designed. Uh, so, and, and, so we get there. We got off to a great start, but I had in the back of my mind, I want to conduct. So two weeks into my time, I got a call from this friend in another house saying, we're looking for a Kapellmeister. You're going to be on the short list. And I said, fantastic. So you're one of eight. They, this is one of the houses that you, they don't invite. Uh, they, they don't uh, have applications. They just invite people. Right. And so I went and did the audition. I was very fortunate to win the audition. It's at a bigger house than the one I've been working at. But uh, I called my boss to say, I'm so sorry. I've been working here for three weeks. Thank you so much for bringing me from Canada. But this will be my first and last season at the Komische Oper. And my boss is a fantastic guy, Australian director called Barry Kosky. He's a crazy, brilliant guy. He said, give me three days. Let me see. Because I had an audition for the Kapellmeister job at the Komische Oper, but it was three months later. Right. So, and I said, I, I can't wait. If I, no, no. if I say no and I don't get that, I'll be caught. And he said, okay, we're going to figure something out. Give me three days. And he called me back three hours. I said, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., you're going to conduct the stage orchestra rehearsal of the Barber of Seville. And at the end of that, the orchestra musicians are going to talk. They're going to give their recommendation. We'll make a decision if we can offer you. And if not, we'll say, thank you. Go ahead. I said, fantastic. Did the rehearsal. I had a really good feeling. The musicians there are so warm, so flexible, so skilled. It's amazing the quality that they can sit in the pit and just any repertoire, just play off and shape. Um, and then long story short, they offered me the job there as well. And then it was the choice of, do you go to the big theater and be, uh, you learn from great conductors and big singers coming in there, but never have the chance to rehearse. You yeah. don't get to just take over productions or do your own magic flutes and barbers, which is great, but it's not a way you develop your own vision. You learn how to survive. Yeah. And, or do you stay in the smaller theater and actually, you know, that's what my, what's what Kosky was saying is, listen, you can be an essential part of this theater. You can be a cog in the wheel over there. And I said, you know what? He's absolutely right. He said, he put it in my contract. I would do at least one new production with him every year. And that was actually the biggest thing for me because nobody comes to see, nobody knows who I am. They don't come to the Kumash Opa to see me. They come to see Barry Kosky and I happen to be in the pit. Mm. And so that was a big advantage. We were doing great repertoire, Pelle Assemenizong, Bohème, uh, all this kind of great rep. And I was doing it with somebody so com theatrically compelling that mm. I was so glad to, I won that job and uh, stayed there for three years as the Kapellmeister. A bigger fish in a smaller pond um, yeah. is the way. I mean, <clears throat> I think that often is the way that people choose. Um, yeah, the, the glitz and glamour of the bigger house, but then, you know, you would have been literally doing, standing in and doing the odd performance here and there, as you said, not rehearsing your own productions, not getting to know how it all works. Um, and, and, you know, in the end, you're still in Berlin. It's not as if you're not going to be drinking in music left, right and centre. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's there's loads and loads of stuff. Did you find it brutal, the system? Um because I know Kevin said it was, and I've spoken to another Dutch conductor, Anthony Hermes, and he said exactly the same. He, when I mentioned the word brutal, he just smiled, grinned and said, oh, God, yes. Uh, what did you think of it? You know, I, I can understand where the perceived brutality comes from, yeah. but either it's that I enjoy, I enjoy to some degree the sharpening. You know, it, it, Kleiber said the only teacher of a conductor is the orchestra. Yeah. And I didn't understand the breadth of what that meant until I entered the German theater system that I was always felt like an outsider in the orchestra, being a keyboard player, you know, it's just different. You don't interact with colleagues the same way. You're not watching a million conductors in that way. You're playing at the piano. You get to know them. You're chummy with mm. the conductors and you learn a lot, but you don't learn what it's like to be on the other side. And so for me, the chance to be in this theater and to soak up, and of course there were hard days and I learned a lot of difficult lessons very quickly. Um, <laughs> and sometimes not as quickly as I, as I should have, but I think the thing that I really love about that house in particular is that they always, you know, were able to raise up your strengths as much as your weaknesses mm. in that, in that family feeling of what it means to be in a house that I knew when I got a tap on my door and was standing there, it could have been the principal oboe, somebody I had a close relationship with. And they say, listen, 
It's driving everybody absolutely mad that you do this. Or at one point it was something like, you, you know what? You're wearing a suit and the gentlemen have to wear a tuxedo and it gets them. And I know it's a minute thing and I don't care, but for them, it's making a difference that every time you walk in, they start the show pissed off and then you kind of <laughs> charm them 10 minutes in, but you don't need that. And oh. these little things about, you know, the mundane things that musicians do also to kind of keep their life fresh, you know, whether it's drawing things in the scores, whether it's the things they sing along to. I love all of those things. And you got to learn those kinds of things to, to realize how you can actually in a, in a theater system like that, where performing is such a part of your everyday life. Uh, you know, in Canada, I've been doing maybe 20, 25 performances a year in which every performance is life and death. You yeah. know, if I had a bad show, I'd come out, that would, that would be a shadow over me for a week. Whereas in Germany, I was doing sometimes five a week. And if you're conducting Peleas that night and the next morning rehearsing, you know, Shostakovich five at 10 o'clock in the morning, there's no time for that. There's the time to say, okay, this is what happened tonight. This is what we can build on. This is what I need to work on. And you move on. Yeah. That's it. And the next time you stand in front of the orchestra again, you come fresh, I'm not trying to make up for the mistakes you made last time, but actually as the new person with the new skills responding uh, spontaneously. There's a, a point I want to, uh, a, a while back you, you use that quote about that Kleiber had said that the best teacher for a conductor is an orchestra. And, you know, I remember that there were conductors when I was a player in Birmingham that obviously thought that their role was to teach the orchestra everything. Um, and you're shaking your head and, and I'm also inside <laughs> shaking, no, shaking mine. Uh, I, uh, and, you know, what you've just said there about, you know, the principal oboe is knocking on your door. It could be just one word that you use regularly that they find annoying or offensive or, you know, uh, always starting rehearsals. Are you, you ready? Let's go. Three, four. <laughs> if you do that every time, eventually somebody's going to get really, really hacked <laughs> off with that. Uh, and, but to hear it from the players, that that's just a gold mine. Um, and to be, always be aware that you know, there are 80 people there who've, the years of experience added up between them is into the thousands of years of experience that to not use that not to be open to not be open to that and to be sometimes just so arrogant that you you discard it and ignore it is is beyond me frankly um, i think a lot of people do that as a safety mechanism to a certain degree yeah. you know it's, it's a sport also standing up there and it's also a sport hating the conductor and yeah, i think course, those are both yeah, healthy yeah. things and, I, and when i'm on the other side it's easy to fall into that as well but you know the musicians are also very good at letting you know subtly i remember when i was doing my first verses of petrushka there and uh, one of them came up to me because you know it was they had a very decorated history of conductors in the past from Kurt Mazur in the 80s. Kirill Petrenko was music director of the house. Vladimir Yurovsky was Kapellmeister, raised the first Kapellmeister in the house. And one of them came to me and was saying, oh, you know, I remember when Kirill did the, the last Einstein of this piece. And over here, he used to do, and it was their way of subtly telling me, you know, yeah. both establishing what the hierarchy was, but also kind of putting their own musical idea forward. That's, you know, one of the things I also learned because I went too far. I swung too far to the musicians know everything. And yes. I came back to realize, wait a second, the musicians, 100% of the time, when something is, when they say something's wrong, they are correct at saying something is wrong. They are almost never correct at prescribing what the solution is. And they always <laughs> think they know. Yeah. They think they can diagnose and prescribe. But the problem is then they get attached to their prescription. And unless you're doing that, that's not healthy. So I've learned to take everything with a pinch of salt. But everything they say is it, meant to be taken to heart at the right time. Yeah, but, it, yeah. You know. you're absolutely right. You know, uh, I, I remember, you know, it still happens to this day with some of the older members in, in Birmingham with the CBSO. You know, if, I, if I'm doing a piece that happened to have been in the repertoire of Simon Rattle, you know, so one of them might come up to me and say, do you remember that what the, what Rattle used to do there? And, and it was their way of saying, you know, what you're doing is wrong and Rattle used to do <laughs> You know, and, and yeah, always you can read that. And, and what you've just said about things being wrong is absolutely correct. An orchestra knows when things are wrong, but very, very rarely do they know how to... to the quicker, quickest and best way of fixing it, or they think that they do, and, it, and it's just, you know, the wrong way around. Um, absolutely perfect, spot on. Couldn't agree with you more. I'm going to go on and talk about guesting, because up until COVID, and let's face it, it's affected... The whole business but all of a sudden you've appeared on the on the scene uh, and i've said this again about the compelmeister system once you're in it you're in it and you're sort of you're 
when when you come out of it, the fully formed conductors appear at sort of the age of 30, 31, um, as if from nowhere. And it's happened many, many times. I've looked at, well, where's this guy come from? Never heard of him. And then you discover, ah, they've been in a German opera house. Yeah, but you, but you, you know, guested in Munich and Berlin, Glyndebourne and Garsington in opera terms in the, you know, and then symphonic terms in Nancy in France, BBC Symphony Orchestra. Going forwards, do you have a template for what you might think to be the perfect year, say 50% opera, 50% symphonic? Are you, do you have designs on being the boss of an opera house or the boss of a symphony orchestra or doing a papano and doing both? You know, what, what does the future hold for you in a perfect world post COVID, uh, you know, your, your career and life uh, in a year, for instance? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, I've always been somebody who's not very good at thinking too far ahead. I, I, you know, I have no idea where I would hope to be five years from now. I just know I've enjoyed so much where I enjoy where I am at the moment and the things that, of course, we've got the next three years are already basically, you know, scheduled where we're going to be, especially because opera takes time, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's planned so far in advance. And that's one thing about COVID now is that some of these opportunities that are coming up, like with the BBC symphony and things like that, and, that they're uh, spontaneous programming as well. I think that's been an unusual, uh, you know, silver lining to this whole thing that we're able to respond very, uh, you know, quickly to things and, 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 you know, to our flavors of the day, but also to things happening in the world. And all that stuff. that's not going to be the case with opera anytime soon. <laughs> but in the same way that we are able to create fresh opera in that way. But as far as it goes, you know, now we, we kind of entered this period of deciding it's, it's good time to step away from the, from my position there in Berlin, uh, as much as it broke my heart to leave the house. And I was so ready to, you know, to accept the offer and stay a little bit longer, but it ended up being the thing that, you know what, you could only say no to the outside world so much yeah. before they stop asking. And I said, you know what, now's the time that I avoided it actually early. Even the first time they asked me to conduct in Munich, I said to my agent, say, no, it, it, I'm not ready. There's only one chance I get to stand in front of that orchestra for the first time. And I, and I want to be my, you know, and I by no means feel like I'm a fully formed uh, conductor, but I feel now with, with the experience I've gained and that what I have to say musically is starting to equal up my ability to share that with musicians and inspire that out of musicians. And that's the goal is that now I think what we need is that special ingredient of getting around now. What used to feel like survival if I go out is now feeling like the perfect learning curve of being able to say, yeah. okay, new orchestra, new situation, picking up what are the strengths quickly? What are the things I can bring out? What are the things that are gonna fix themselves? Where do I need to concentrate? And all that kind of stuff. And learning from, like you said, learning from these great ensembles. I. You know, you mentioned Munich. When I stayed, that was in August that I conducted. It was actually a COVID thing that was, uh, right. that was uh, amazing to do an opera production in September of last year. It was almost unbelievable. Um, but I remember that I had forgotten again. It had been about seven months, six months since I had conducted an orchestra. And you forget the, the powers, the power of the equal sign, you know, that a concert, you know, so we were working on the formula before, which is like the rehearsal. And you can yeah. modify that to try and get the result you want on the other side of the equal sign. But that you need that equal sign in order to figure out what you're screwing around with on the other side. Because otherwise you can try, you can't, you don't know what you're going at. So when I got there in Munich and there was the second performance, there was this unbelievably magical moment moment in which uh, that that storied Munich pianissimo sound that they make that is just full of quality and rings and sings but it's just and it was like finding a key to a to a castle I didn't know existed (laughs) before and and my hands have not felt the same since then in a way once you felt that what it's like to achieve that sound it's amazing. We're changed and that you can take that around and try and and everywhere you learn things like that. So it felt like the right time to do this. And I would love to be back in the theater system uh, sooner than later, but it's not something that we're putting our focus on right now. Right. You touched on a wonderful point and I'm not sure really I've discussed this for a long time on the podcast. You talked about not wanting to go to Munich, uh, telling your agent not to go, not to accept because you didn't feel you were ready but also probably because you wanted to go with the right repertoire or the right project or the right thing. I know, for instance, there was an orchestra in this country I, uh, I told my agent I didn't want to go to because it was the wrong project for me and then went there later with the right repertoire and it worked and I've been going back ever since. How important is that? Well, first of all, to be sure of yourself that that's how you want to play it, but also to have the relationship with your manager 
that they're also, you know, on board with you and you have a discussion about this and you don't just keep being sent emails saying you are going here next, you're going there next, you're going there in three years' time. How important is that, do you think, for conductors? It's critical, I'd say. And you're so right to highlight that relationship between management and you and that, you know, you have a similar vision and that they're willing to be patient and allowing things to grow in a natural way. And that was for me a huge, and it's the same reason I, I always avoid it. I've never applied for a competition. Not that I don't see the value in them and not that mm -hmm. I don't admire. A lot of the young conductors I admire have been able to conquer that system. It's like a gladiator almost the way yeah. that I respect them, you know, but I'm, I'm not a gladiator. That's not my style. And also, so I would I would cower at the idea of having 25 engagements next week that I think, oh, my gosh, how am I ever going to keep swimming and not only keep swimming, but actually become a better swimmer while doing it yes. and not just learn how to tread water. Yeah. Um, and so that's uh, something that you're right is so critical. And that's been for us a huge, uh, a huge point. And I'm so grateful that my uh, my manager and both of them, uh, I have one in North America and one doing the rest of the world, have both really been on board with that from day one. So use your swimming analogy, and especially after a competition, if you get 25 uh, engagements as part of the prize of winning a competition, you've got a choice, really. You either go in knowing that you're a brilliant 100-metre freestyler and only do the same programme, i.e. the 100-metre freestyle for 25 different uh, or, uh, events, or you decide to be really brave and go, right, I'm going to do the 100 metres freestyle this week, I'll do the 200 back the next week, I'll do the 50 butterfly the week after that, Along there, somewhere along the line, you're going to swim very badly. Um, <laughs> unless you're a Michael Phelps or a Mark Spitz or something, you know, it, it's exactly. going to go really badly somewhere. So I, I, it, I've never thought about it like that, but it must be difficult for a competition winner to, you know, you can't always go in and do your party piece because the music director of the orchestra that's booked you might, it might be their party piece. You know, you, mm -hmm. you have to, and I would never want to go somewhere and think and conduct something, you know, a whole program of music I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're now going to do the 100 meter medley, you know, <laughs> that's definitely not for me. Yeah, but it's one of those things also, you know, you have to get used to, we're all looking for affirmation to some degree, right? And when yeah. somebody calls you and says, hey, we want you to come and conduct this great orchestra and do this great rep, and you think, oh, yeah. And there's always the, also the issue, it's always 18 months away. It's future yes. use problem. It's easy for present you to take the glory and sign up and, you know, and then the future self has got to get out there and say, okay, where am I going to be? And that was actually part of the reason why I started to come around now and say, okay, I can't keep living negatively in the present either and saying, I'm never going to, at what point are you going to have to you know put on your big pants and, and get out there and do it so it's always a, a a balance you're finding within yourself you are the first person i've spoken to who have been um well that's a, it's a bit of a lie uh, there have been plenty of emails come in and, and with names uh, of conductors for me to interview and suggestions um some of them we've asked and they've turned us down and some of them we've asked and they've come on but the invitation came to us from an Australian conducting student who said, we had this guy come over, he gave a masterclass, I think he'd be brilliant on your podcast. And within two hours, we'd spoken to your management and they said, yeah, Jordan's really up for it. Um, and which leads to my next question, which is giving masterclasses and teaching. Is it something you've done a lot of? Is it something you enjoy? And is it something that you think in the future you might wanna do more of? That is so funny because uh, I don't particularly enjoy it. <laughs> I do I, I do it when I must. And so, yeah. for example, the Australia thing is a very funny connection because we had taken with the Komisha Opa our magic flute uh, on tour. Yeah. And we, had, we were in Japan the year before. And then we went, uh, I guess it was in 2019, to Australia and New Zealand. And that's when I got the chance to meet the Adelaide Symphony and the Auckland Philharmonia. Because when we went to Japan, we actually took our orchestra with us. We took two casts of singers. We took our makeup to our, we were 189 people. Can you even imagine wow. Wow. I, the logistics of that, of us all going to Japan? And, uh, and it was cherry blossom season. It was fantastic. Oh, lovely. And especially because we had our own orchestra, right? So we just go do a sound check and you can play that in your sleep. We yeah. had two conductors on the tour. We had a blast. Whereas in Australia, we couldn't take our orchestra. They were too busy in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And so we had a, each city a different orchestra, which means you finish the closing night, get on a plane the first thing in the morning. That evening is your first orchestra read. And then you just build it up from scratch again, open till close, and then leave to the next city and do it again three times yeah. over. And in each of the cities, they had asked me from the Komisch Opa that the universities have been in touch if we could send some people to do classes with the students. Now, that's one thing that I regret that I'm not able to do enough is connect with 
people yeah. in, in the industry, because I know to me, the most valuable thing, I mentioned three teachers I had before, but actually I feel that right now, some of the teachers I have, which are mentors, the people I've come across, whether it's assisting or having seen in rehearsal or heard about that I've reached out to, and that I've been, played such an instrumental role in my life. I'm doing Rosencalf now. I've talked to three of the great pianist coaches that I've worked for and two conductors who've conducted probably a total of six, 700 performances of the piece. And that I would be nothing in this thing if I wasn't able to have the confidence of this support system. So if I can yeah. ever play a role, I'm glad to do it. And so I went in, uh, in, in each of the cities and did these classes. And it was actually great because it was an accompanied recit in that one. That's probably uh -huh, why we right. got on so well. <laughs> it was full the circle. famous one for yeah. Magic Flute. Right. Exactly. And so, yeah, it's something I, I, you know, I don't imagine, I just don't see that I have anything to teach somebody, but if I can ever be there, you know, to have a chat, almost like we're doing, you know, to, to be able to connect with coaches. I was just talking to a friend yesterday. He used to be a conductor. He's a clarinet player. And I was needing to ask some questions about heckle phones and clarinets in D versus clarinets in E flat. You can read it in a book or you can get it from somebody who yeah. speaks with their heart. And that to me is invaluable. So yeah, yeah I had, I got on really well with those guys in both New Zealand and in, uh, and the conducting students in Australia. So that came over in the email that I was sent. Um, it's funny. Yeah, there are parts of teaching, and you know, I taught the violin for a long time before I became a conducting teacher as well. There are parts of teaching I think I always find very, very, very dull. But it's the interaction. I happened to be working at the Royal Conservatory of Scotland in Glasgow a couple of weeks ago, and there were three postgraduate conducting students. I just love chatting to them like we're chatting now and all sorts of subjects come up. And I told them there was no topic off limits, just chat to me about all sorts of things. Fantastic. We also had a three-hour class with two pianos built into the thing, which I found a lot less enjoyable because, you know, two piano classes, as Simon Rattle famously says, they're brilliant if you want to learn how to conduct two pianos. You know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's completely right. Um, whilst you can talk a lot about what might happen or what could happen when you conduct Brahms three or Mendelssohn three or Borjak eight or whatever, it's it's wholly it's just doesn't feel like it. It's uh, you can teach everything because you're not conducting an orchestra, and I find it deeply frustrating. Whereas the just the chatting and, and you know people have said to me oh thank you for that piece of advice it doesn't have to be anything to do with you know the, them standing in front of you you can just be just spending exactly. five minutes together or or you know half an hour in a pub one one day maybe hopefully soon um i know yeah but yeah i, I agree with you i'm very much like that even though you're not going to go on and teach, <laughs> um, there is, of course, the question which I've asked every conductor, which is to do with score prep. Um, and again, because you're a pianist, I wonder, do you sit with the piano and go through your scores with the piano, or do you do it like I do with my, you know, all through my inner ear? What's your process? Do you start on page one and go to the end, or do you, you know, have a different way of, of attacking it? And the thing that all of us conducting geeks and students want to know, are you a marker-inner of things? Are you a scribbler? Do you use red, blue, black, yellow highlighters? What's your tactics? Yeah, so, you know, I would say that that's something, I guess, for all of us, too, that have, has evolved so much uh, over time. And I'm definitely a scribbler. I yeah. definitely like to, you know, I, I think we prepare scores for two different reasons. We prepare scores in order to learn scores. Yeah. And that's one set of things we need to do. And then we prepare scores from which to conduct as well. And it, you yes. very rarely, when you're conducting, do you need all that stuff that's now a part of you and a part of your, you know, kind of mental blueprint of the piece. Um, but you know, I had an experience uh, when I was conducting a double bill at the Comte of uh, Petrushka and L'Enfant et les Sortilèges of Ravel. So first half is Petrushka. And, you know, like always, I have a kind of tabs at the bottom of my score of passages that as I'm studying, I think this is something I'd want to review. If somebody called me 20 minutes before I go to those 10 tabs, I know I'd be OK. Yeah. And um, so I go th I was going through Petrushka before the show. And then I used to look at Lafayette at the break. So we got through a great performance of Petrushka. It was the pause. I was talking to somebody. I got to my room, go to pick my Lafayette score. It's not there. I said, where the hell is it? I looked in my bag, looked here. It's nowhere call the library. I need a score. I have five minutes till I go on. They said, okay. They brought me a fresh score. I was so scared. I thought, <laughs> what am I going to do? The meter changes every measure in the first 10 pages of the score. Yep. It's unbelievably tricky piece. And then all of a sudden I opened the score 
And it was like everything I'd written was already there. And I could, it's like I looked at the score for the first time with fresh eyes and I saw it more clearly than I had ever seen it. And I loved it. Mm. And from that day on, I've adopted the two score approach in which I study everything and I write everything I want in, the, in a score, whether it's stories, whether it's little ideas I have of interpretation that I'll never take, everything going in there. Sometimes a harmonic progression, figured bass, all kinds of things. And to answer your second question, I always, there's no, no score I've conducted that I haven't tried to work on at the piano. Just mm. because this, I feel again, there's two sides of me, the, the inner ear side, which I, most of my inspired ideas actually come that way, sitting at the score and you say, wait a second, the relationship of this to that, this needs to come out. How do I get the transparency? That's done better at the desk in a way. Yeah. But the musicality of how I phrase things, of what the point of tension is, comes to me so much more naturally through my fingers than through my head. And so sitting at the piano, I almost always find more breath in the music. And so for me, it's a healthy thing to get away from the desk and play, to get away from the piano and get back to the study. So it's always a combo of the two. And uh, with the two score approach, I find it so effective. It's funny, uh, Donald Runnicles, wonderful conductor. He's the music director of the Deutsche Oper. We've had a really nice relationship. He's been so kind to me and uh, offered lots of wonderful mentorship. And uh, he said to me once, listen, anytime you want to take a score off my shelf, you're welcome. Just ask, uh, my, my, my assistant will let you in, take what you need. And I said, you know, I'm doing Peleas. I, I would love to see your Peleas score. He said, please. And he handed me a score. And he writes very little in his score. Some things with the text, he writes the Parsifal in brackets, like Wagner quotations he finds, things uh, like that. Yeah. But very little to do with the thing. And so I was conducting a performance of Peleas five months after the premiere, because that often happens in German houses, right? Yes. There's a big gap in between the performances. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do tonight with Donald's score, not with my score. I thought, this is going to be fun. And I get there and I'm having a blast. And I get to the first interlude and I forget. I changed all the interludes to the original Debussy interludes, but like a year before and I turned like, Oh Jesus, where does this? And sure enough, it was okay. I, I kind of mentioned to the concert master, the next scene, like, Hey, listen, if I look towards you and I'm, you just say it's fits in three or it's in four, yeah. you know? And we got each other through the performance and it was great, but I thought, Oh, you fool. How could you be so careless? <laughs> but yeah. So in, in a way I do use some colors in, in my score as well. Mostly red and blue things. Uh, the usual, I love to do the bar structure first, but yeah. I also try not to avoid the. I used to do a very much a checklist mentality that if I go through these things, I know the score I've thrown that out. I try to come at it from a different way. I almost always, always work in chunks from the back to the front. I like arriving at something I know well, and then yeah. it's building on it to the end. And then the little bit you don't know into something you know. So those kinds of things have stuck with me in a big way. But I would almost say every score I study teaches me a little bit more about how to study the next one. And it's changing all the time, sometimes with no color, sometimes with lots of color. Uh, it depends on the piece. Yeah. Do you think uh, it's come up because it's just popped into my head? Do you think because of your time spent in the Kapellmeister system and at uh, Komische Oper in Berlin, where you spend most of your time at a keyboard replicating the sound of an orchestra, that that helps you when you sit at your score and the at the keyboard to replicate the sound of an orchestra? Do you know what I mean? There is a difference between a pianist who plays Mozart concertos and Rachmaninoff second concerto trying to play a, a reduction or an orchestra score than it is to somebody like yourself who spent hours literally hours for three or four years replicating an orchestra you're absolutely right and uh i, I should specify too that at the komish opa i actually never played rehearsals and oh, i was okay. lucky that even though i auditioned in a piano job that from the beginning of the as being studio lighter there i conducted rehearsals the conductors are often not there for the rehearsals they often show up much later we have to so i was responsible for the musical preparation yeah. but i actually never played a rehearsal in that theater um but you're right that i never would think of myself as as a concert pianist yeah. and even I do I, if I had to class categorize myself I'd say almost a pianist of, of song repertoire it's something I did a lot as well uh, Franz Schubert things like that the old Brahms all that's great tradition French melody English art song uh, and as a as an opera pianist but you're right that I think my when I look at a score I can feel it in my fingers even if I've never played it yeah. And so that's a huge part of, uh, of it. But, you know, I, I learned early, too, that there's certain conductors who are pianists that play, that conduct orchestras like they're playing a piano. And that can be very dangerous, too, that the sound you get, you know, it lacks roundness, it lacks warmth. And that was something that was my instinct at the beginning as well, to, uh, to take it. But mm. actually, there's a much more generous way. Guys like Maris Janssons, uh, I, I think I learned watching them in rehearsal, the way that not with the mouths only, but with their hands, how they could seduce a sound from an orchestra was amazing. If you are fascinated by how a score is marked up, 
I've written an article on the subject, showing my own method and explaining how I go about the process of marking and learning a score. You can see this article, as well as other articles, bonus mini-episodes, interviews and videos by subscribing from just £5 a month to my Patreon page. If you decide to pay annually, you can even get a 10% discount over the year and join the discussion all about conductors and conducting at a discounted rate. This is quite a saving if you choose to pay for the highest rate, which includes conducting lessons from myself as part of the package. The details are in the show notes attached to this episode, and it would be great to have more of you subscribing to this ever-growing supporters club. Now, back to my chat with Jordan D'Souza and the all-important 10 questions. Jordan, it's that time of the podcast again, the 10 questions. And we start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Now, the, the sound I love, I think, has changed since the pandemic. And it was the, the first time I conducted after six months, I learned what it was. It's the sound of an orchestra tuning. Ah. And it, I never thought I loved it before until you haven't heard that in a while and you realize that it kind of tunes you up also before a show. And, you know, I, it's, a, it's the same for concert, but it's a little different in opera in that you're standing in the bowels of the stage where you fought, where you've, you know, all the blood, sweat and tears of an opera production of marking parts of fighting over Tempe of firing this guy. And then all of a sudden it's silent. And that sweetness, nobody can come and talk to you. You know, you have your bodyguard there, the orchestra is standing there beside you. And it's just peace, no cell phones, nothing. And then you hear that sound and it's like the sound of possibility. And I never felt that way. or I never realized I felt that way until it was gone and it came back. So that yeah. I would say is my favorite sound. Um, and my least favorite sound, that's, that's not an easy one. Um, I hate the sound of people complaining. That's what I hate. I hate the sound, you know, you can like hear their souls dying on the inside as they talk to you. I hate complaints. <laughs> Brilliant answer. Uh, I have to say there, it's not necessarily the tuning up on stage is a sound that I love. I'm a, a dream for the, the orchestra manager or whoever it is who has to come and get you at 725 uh, and take you to the concert platform because I'm already there at 725 because the sound that gets me in the mood is the orchestra warming up backstage. I'm not sure I could ever go on stage without hearing, you know, snap little snippets of concertos or the same warm up on a, on a, a trumpet or a tuba or something. It's a sound I adore. and I, It gets me in the mood. You know, I, I could be in any, all sorts of states of mind. The minute I've heard that it's, you know, it's exactly the, the thing that sets me off. Absolutely. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I would spend that family barbecue. That's an easy one. If I'm in uh, North America, I would be at my brother's house with hopefully all my family there, you know, with the pool, with a card game, with a little bit of movies going on, some sports, we'd go down and play some sports. That would be, that, that's my favorite day. And if I was in Europe, uh, you know, with, without my whole family, it'd probably be in the mountains going for a nice hike. Well, um, I might not join you on the hike, but I'd love to come to the family barbecue. That sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> The next one, um, you can have more than one, as many as you like. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? This is a tough one because you're right. There's so many. And, you know, I find it hard. It's like with, with, with saying your favorite composer. There's, it's almost like there's a class of the greatest composer. And there could be five, ten people that, that can categorize that. But now I, maybe we could do like a Mount Rushmore, you know. You could be like the Mount Rushmore of orchestral trainers. Who would that yeah. be? It would be uh, George Sell, uh, maybe Barbirolli. Uh, Fritz Reiner, you know, Miravinsky with Leningrad. Yes. But if I had to say, if I had to say my Mount Rushmore of the Mount Rushmore of conductors, like the, the ultimate greats, I'd start with Artur Nikish. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen that fantastic clip, the footage of him conducting silent? I have. Yeah. It's amazing. Glorious. Ab absolutely amazing. And to hear the stories, Fritz Reiner would talk about how, uh, how Brahms, you know, was he, he would, Brahms was satisfied when he heard uh, Nikish's uh, fourth symphony. He said, this is the way it ought to sound. Um, second one for me, uh, the, maybe the ultimate God is Arturo Toscanini. Mm -hmm. I really admire Toscanini also because he was somebody who stood for something more than just music. And you know, when you read the history, when you hear all the problems going on with Mussolini, with all the things that he had such a principle that he could step away, the things he did in, in, in Israel and everything, it's unbelievably uh, magnanimous. And so I admire, and also what a musician, you know, 
And that principle of everything ought to sing has really stuck with me every time, ever since I heard that. Um, Eric Kleiber is another one in that same mold I really admire. I would say when I'm going to study a new piece, if Toscanini or Kleiber, Eric Kleiber did it, it's almost where I'll start. Because yeah. even if it's nothing like what I'll do with it, it's such an ultimate reference and so musical, you're guaranteed to have something special. And I'm sure you've heard Carlos Kleiber a lot. And without Eric Kleiber, there would be no Carlos Kleiber. So I'll take Eric <laughs> Kleiber. <laughs> And I, then I would say either Karian or Furtwängler, somebody of that tradition who the sound, you know, the, the, the vision for what it could be and what they did with such a story orchestra and that Karian could come after Furtwängler and continue a great tradition like that. I admire both of those guys so much. I love your idea of a conductor's Mount Rushmore. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, then you got to do the Mount Rushmore of, you know, lesser known conductors like <laughs> Guido Cantelli and stuff yeah. like that. I love Cantelli. So, yeah, yeah there's, that's a fun way to do it. Well, I wonder whether um, you can make a Mount Rushmore case for who would be your favorite current conductors, which is possibly even harder question. Yeah, and I guess maybe currently could be, include people that I've seen live, maybe. So even if they yeah. just, let, you know, Maris Janssons, I would put very high on that list. I've seen him rehearse and conduct varied repertoire with different orchestras. And every time the common thread was an unbelievable soul in the music and unbelievable musicality. So, and the musicians loved him. That's always, to me, the ultimate, uh, you know, check, uh, check on a conductor is how do those guys actually feel about him? And uh, so Janssons, I, I adore Harnenkur. I think the freshness and the breadth of his repertoire that he started at the beginning and made it so far doing Alban Berg and he does great Strauss, everything in his rehearsals. I know some, I have some friends who played in, with him in the Chamber Orchestra of Europe and they say that was some of the most memorable, uh, you know, pictures ever painted with words came from Harnenkur. Yeah. Um, and then of the younger generation, um, two people I admire a lot. Um, uh, one is Vladimir Yurovsky. I think Yurovsky... I don't know anybody who conducts his broader repertoire as often as he does and with as much commitment. And he's a beautiful mixture of intellect and pragmatism, of musicality. He knows exactly what he can get from an orchestra. He's taking parts after the third performance and making little changes and writing notes to the musicians and things like that. I love the care with which he does everything. And, um, and Ivan Fischer, he's yeah. another one who I admire to a great degree. What he's done, the creativity with which, you know, uh, I'm sure you've heard the stories in, in Budapest of the, of the orchestra singing a cappella motets. That's unbelievable. I, I saw that live, to see an orchestra stand up and sing a cappella, just to have the idea to actually follow through on that. Uh, in, in Berlin at the Konzerthaus, he used to have the orchestra warm up by playing Bach chorales and stuff. Uh, you know, it, that kind of creativity and what he's done with the orchestra model in, in, in Budapest, his repertoire, his, he, he, I think he's brilliant. Wonderful choices, absolutely wonderful choices. Um, and especially Ivan Fischer, you know, even uh, I've heard him talk about conducting uh, away from orchestras and what he says, and I don't know whether you've seen the, the masterclasses he gave last year at the Concertgebouw with four young conductors. Uh, yeah. They were just wonderful. Um, so yeah, a big tick, wonderful choice. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Um, maybe I'll go in two directions. The first one is something that's just pure, just to understand the musical materials was so difficult was Charles Ives. Some of those, uh, even some of the miniature pieces. I remember sitting once over thinking, okay, now five has to equal 11. So if I think of a triplet and then turn the triplet into seven, I'm going to get there. Right. And then you think, what are you, what am I doing? This is not who I am. So that I found just weeks and weeks trying to solve math. It's like Sudoku puzzle, you know, and I yeah. love Sudoku, but not that type of Sudoku. And then another piece that was just practically difficult, difficult to pick pace, to balance, to make transparent. And that was Zemlinsky's Lyric Symphony. Oh, I found wow. that a very difficult piece to, to pull off, but I loved it. I think the poetry is glorious. I think the orchestra writing is glorious, but it's sometimes on the edge of playability. And that makes it very difficult to actually uh, make musical and not just to, you know, kind of have it all flying at you, a wall of sound. So yeah. those are two different poles of difficulty. It doesn't come around very often, that piece by Zemlinsky. I, I'm sure I played it once in my 22-year career as a violinist, but it just doesn't come around very often. It's a shame because it's beautiful music. Yeah, it's treacherously difficult and very hard to find singers that can do it and that can balance with the orchestra. It's treacherously difficult. It's recorded, I'd say, almost more often than it's performed. Yeah. Uh, the next one, number seven, we're rattling through them. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? 
That's a funny one for me because I've actually had this item with me. I've taken it since I was a kid on every trip I ever went, but it serves a very different purpose now than it did then. Although I guess it serves a, a, a similar purpose as well, but it's multi-purpose. And that is very simple, a tennis ball. I always have at least two tennis balls with me uh, for two reasons. I, I love throwing it at the wall and catching it, which in theaters you can do because you get these big, thick walls often in the basement. And uh, secondly, when I need to massage my back without anybody around, it's very easy to go up against the hard wall with the tennis ball and you can get anywhere in there. Deep tissue massage. What an excellent answer. I, I may well have to start taking a tennis ball with me. Um, I love spinning a cricket ball between my fingers and throwing it up in the air. And, and I can spend a long time doing that, just thinking. Um, exactly. It's possibly too hard for a, a deep tissue massage because I'd probably break a bone. But a tennis ball, yeah, I'm getting a tennis ball. Thank you, John. <laughs> my pleasure. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Oh, that's a hard one. So it's something I don't think about often. We kind of just have to learn to bear our cross. That's the attitude of, you know, when, once you've said goodbye to your family enough times, it just, you know, it's not, you don't become numb ever to it, no. but it does become a bit of a ritual in itself. I would say, you know, that if somehow we could reconcile the, the child rearing better with, uh, with this itinerant lifestyle, it's both things don't seem to be, although I guess the, the German theater system, something like that is an antidote to some degree to it, being able to spend more time with your family. And on a less personal level maybe it's that you know that that just to do what we do at a basic level is so time consuming that often we don't get to i would love to be able to make a committee of a few conductors who were actually committing themselves to something totally unmusical and putting all that brain power and all of that passion that we've only get to put through one lens so often to actually come out i thought about that during the the virus that during the pandemic my gosh all these countries survive why do we get these brilliant like some of these guys vlad Jirovsky. If somebody can make something happen, it's Vlad. You know, this, some of these people together in order to, you know, and how, what a pleasure it'd be to support something like that. But yeah, it's, I mean, that is the problem with being, is with conductors. And actually, one of the joys of this podcast is that, you know, there are two of us speaking to each other. How often do you, in the, in a real world, actually sit down with another conductor and have a chat, let alone getting a committee of conductors together? I mean, I can think of I can think of problems. I mean, you know, there's that's, there's a lot of egos in that room, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's it's a very interesting thought. Very interesting thought. Um, yeah. Food for thought. That's what that is. <laughs> and uh, number nine. Before we get to food, maybe it's a part of your answer. Maybe you want to be a chef. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would be a terrible chef, unfortunately. Um, that's a great question. And it's something I think about, but never come up with a convincing answer. I, I think I wish I could have been a doctor. Yeah. I think I could have been a lawyer. Yeah. And if I right now was to try and attempt something, uh, I, don't, I guess if you gave me a blank check and said, go do what, any job you want is yours. You get to choose. I'm going back to Toronto, to Toronto Raptors, hometown basketball team. I'm working either on that coaching staff in some kind of supporting role or in the front office. I would love that idea. Um, or I would, uh, some kind of business, you know, a competitive business environment, problem solving. Give me a problem to solve and not enough time to solve it and I'll be happy. Isn't that a Bernstein quote? There's something, something about like mu that. <laughs> music making is something like that. It's, it's exactly. along that, or writing music. It's definitely, there's definitely a Bernstein relevance there. Um, I'm sure I stole it from somebody. <laughs> um, well, the other quote, of course, is Berlioz, which is um, uh, time is a great teacher, but the problem is it kills all of its students, uh, which I absolutely <laughs> love. <laughs> How can somebody be so brilliant to come up with that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and finally, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Uh, now, if I could be anywhere in the world, if I just get to transport to my whatever restaurant I choose, it would probably be boring. It would be steak frites, the steak and fries at L'Express in Montréal. Uh, with like something like a Brunello. I don't care if it pairs properly. It's my last night. I'm drinking that. And, uh, and I'd have to have my favorite salad and my daughter's favorite salad, a taboule salad, which is like a curly parsley mixed with mint and tomatoes and bulgur and, and pomegranate seeds and lots of lemon. And that, that, that would be, I don't even think they make it there, but if it was my last night in the world, maybe they'd make it for me that night. I can bring it in for you. <laughs> steak and chips or steak and steak and fries is yeah. yeah well, I, it, to let the listener know, I've been promised it tomorrow because it's my birthday tomorrow. So wow. um, I'm looking forward to that, and no wonder you're looking forward to that. 
And I would, I've had a wonderful uh, hour or so with you, Jordan, chatting away. It's been lovely to meet you, lovely to talk to you. And I hope that maybe we can meet over a glass of Brunello somewhere in the world at some point very soon. Such a pleasure to chat with you, Mike. Thanks. Keep up the great work. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a Grammy Award-winning conductor who hails from the United States. Over a long and distinguished career, he's guest conducted all over the world and been music director of both the Brooklyn Philharmonic and the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, the latter for over 20 years. Since 2011, he's been teaching and mentoring at the Aspen Music Festival. But until then, bye-bye.